Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we ask that you would take unbelief far from us, that we would be able to see you in your gospel, and that we would be persuaded, convinced, compelled by your grace and be changed. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. theme for today then is humility. One preacher said that humility is the shadow of God. Humility is the shadow of God. Where he goes, humility is sure to follow after. It's little wonder then that we do not look out upon our culture and see a lot of humility. Never has such a universally beloved principle been so neglected in practice. And this week and next week, we're going to spend a couple of weeks reflecting on this text in Philippians chapter 2 and reflecting upon this theme. It actually was one massive sermon that turned into two weeks, so you can be grateful that we're not going to be here till 1.30 today. Um, We're going to divide uh, right down the middle. And so this week, we're going to cover the basics. We're going to cover the preliminaries. Next week, we're going to dig a little more into the text with some targeted application. So the basics then of humility this week, I want to ask three questions. First of all, what is humility? What is humility? Secondly, why do we lack it? And third, what is the hope for us? What is humility? Why do we lack it? And what is the hope for us? Let's dive in then together, looking at verse three of chapter two in Philippians, asking this question, what is humility. In verse 3, we read these words, in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. Count others more significant than yourselves. Now, this doesn't mean some sort of self-loathing claim that you are just the worst of the worst and everybody out there is better at everything than you are. That is a form of false humility. The Lord has given us all gifts, and it is good and healthy for us to know and have a sense of what these gifts are. What are our passions? What are those things that you are good at? It is healthy for us to think in that way. What this means, uh, rather, is that we are to see others as worthy of preferential treatment. We're to see others as worthy of preferential treatment. So we don't think that the gifts that the Lord has given me and the gifts the Lord has given you somehow make us deserving or worthy of special treatment. Rather, we look at others and see their significance. We're not self-absorbed. We esteem them and put others first. Then look down with me at verse 4 where we read, Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Don't just look at your own interests. Also consider the interests of others. Again, the call to humility here is a call to look away from self and focus upon other people. Again, we are to be uh, not encouraged to form some form of self-neglect where we don't take care of our interests, but rather we're to be more concerned about the needs of others. Taken together, verse 3 and verse 4, it give us a sense of what gospel humility is all about. It's about looking away from ourselves and having a concerned focus upon other people. 
Tim Keller describes this very well when he says that the essence of gospel humility isn't thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. It's not thinking less of yourself, as if to be humble means to be self-loathing, reproachful, and walk around saying, I am but a worm. No, it's not thinking less of yourself. Rather, it is thinking of yourself less. It is not being self-absorbed, getting out of your own head and having a concern for other people. Humble people don't have low self-esteem. They don't go around beating themselves up. They don't necessarily lack confidence. Rather, humble people are more concerned with the other. They spend their time and their energy and their thought space upon how they can be a blessing to other people. So, in other words, the very essence of humility is a a joyful self-forgetfulness. A joyful self-forgetfulness. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now this creates a problem. If humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less, this, this is a problem for us. Why is this such a problem? I want to suggest two reasons. Two reasons why we lack humility. The first reason is what Augustine called the mother of all sins, pride. First reason that we lack humility comes from our pride, an exaggerated opinion of our significance, an exaggerated opinion of our abilities and our worth and our value. This works against the call to focus on the significance and interests of others. It's clear that the Philippians struggled with this, as Paul warns them, against selfish ambition and conceit. Do you lack humility because of pride? And this is a hard question for us because pride is one of those very distasteful sins. It is hard for us to confess that we are a prideful people. So let me ask you eight questions to see if you are, in fact, proud. Signs that you might be proud. First of all, do you have a really hard time asking for help when you find something difficult? You might be proud if you have a really hard time asking for help when you find something difficult. This is why men don't need instructions and why we don't ever ask for directions, right? Because we feel we should know. And we feel that the act of asking is somehow belittling to our own abilities. And so we feel prideful and unable to do that. Is that you? Number two, do you think your way of doing things is the way of doing things? This can cover a wide range of things from how to load the dishwasher unbelievable marital tension comes from this question. Um, You know, which way round do the spoons go, okay? Um, Do you think your way is the way? I had a guy in between services pass me and say, great sermon, but you know there is a right way to put the spoons in the dish. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Small things like the dishwasher, but larger things. I mean, DC, this is a town of control freaks. Are you a control freak? Does everything have to be done your way? You may be proud. Third, you may be proud if uh, you very rarely apologize for anything, but typically blame other people. Do you have a really hard time owning your responsibility in a hard situation? And even if it was 80% their fault and 20% yours, you'll never apologize for the 20%. When was the last time you apologized to someone for something that you had done? Was it recently as the last time you sinned against someone? You may be proud if not. Four, you may be proud if you hate to be beaten at anything by anyone. Um, 
diagnostic of this, it does the game of Monopoly kick off a family feud, right? Um, in my house, it does. Where do you think I get these points from? Um, you know, that's that feeling of just being so frustrated or upset or angry if you're beaten at anything by anyone. You may be proud. Number five, you may be proud if you avoid doing things that you won't excel at. You avoid doing things that you won't excel at. If you can't be really good at it, if you can't be in the top 10%, if you can't win, then you don't play. Because for you, the taking part is not what counts. You'll only take part if you can win. Six, you may be proud if it bothers you when another team member comes up with the solution bothers you when someone else has the good idea, someone else solves the problem, someone else has the fix, someone else has the insight needed to uh, move things forward. And rather than be pleased that you are moving things forward, you are a little bit resentful that it wasn't you that came up with that good idea. You care about who gets the credit. Uh, Number seven, you may be proud if it's vital that other people think highly. This is a town of influence and reputation that cares too much about what other people think. Does the opinion of others have a hold over you? Do you just do really, really poorly with criticism? When someone criticizes you, it festers and you turn over in your mind all the things you could say in response to that criticism? Number eight, you may be proud if you believe in God, but do not consciously rely on him day to day. Functionally, you live as if you're competent to run your own life. And so you spend little time in prayer, little time in his word, little time with his people, because you don't really think that you need it. If any of these things ring true, if some of them hit home, then you, like me, might struggle with pride, with the sense of self-absorption that causes us to focus upon ourselves, our own significance, our own value. And this is a problem because the essence of humility is a joyful self-forgetfulness. But understanding humility as we do, there is a second danger, as I said, a second subtler danger to humility, coming not so much in pride, but in its counterpart, or the other side of this coin called insecurity. You might not think of yourself as a proud person, but maybe you are an insecure person. This also is an enemy of humility because it, again, causes us to focus our time and attention inwardly upon ourselves, not externally on other people. Are you insecure? Let's have another eight points. First, you might be insecure if you obsess about physical appearance. How many outfits did you try on this morning? Um... How do you need to be, uh, what kind of appearance do you need to project to people? Is it really important for you to have things together? Number two, you may be insecure if you find it really hard to be vulnerable so that very few people know you well. Do you have lots of friends, lots of acquaintances, but there's not three people on this earth who know everything about you? A fear of, of being known. Number three, you might be insecure if you find it really hard to accept a compliment. Some people, you compliment them and it's like starting an argument. You know? You say, I like that cake, and they say, I just followed the recipe. You know? Uh, You say, I like that, you know, song, and they say, I didn't do as well as that person. Right? You know, whatever you say, they say something in response. And there's there's sort of this, do you have this sense of feeling awkward when someone praises you? 
Number four, you might be insecure if, I like this one, you apologize when there's no apology necessary. I was in Greenberries this morning looking over my notes and uh, two people bumped into each other and one guy spilled another guy's coffee and the guy whose coffee got spilled apologized, right? And I was like, no, wrong, wrong way around here, right? This guy should be doing the apologizing. And I, I do this as well. You know, you bump into someone, oh, sorry. You know, do you have this, this fear and this tendency to apologize when it's not necessary? And number five, you might be insecure if you have a hard time making decisions, especially in a group. We were laughing about this as staff this week, that if you're in a group of people, trying to go decide where to go to lunch can become very stressful because nobody will say, hey, let's go to this place. I like it. Or let's go see this movie. I like that. Everyone's too afraid to put their own opinion forward. You may be insecure. Number six, you might be insecure if you avoid confrontation because you fear the scene. A good example of this is, are you one of these people who would never send an order back in a restaurant? I'm one of these people. They could bring me anything, and I won't say anything. Right? You know, I order steak, they bring me fish, I eat it. Okay? You know, it's kind of like... The way it goes. Um, And I don't know why. There's just this uneasiness in my soul of saying, this is not what I ordered. It's not that complicated, but it's hard to do. You might be like me and be insecure. At number seven, and this is equal but opposite error, you might be insecure if, not if you avoid confrontation, but if you're always heading into confrontation. If you, if you feel this need to justify yourself, to prove yourself right, to argue the other person down, to show that you were in the right, to be defensive, because it just can't be possible that you were wrong, you might be insecure. Number eight, and lastly, you might be insecure if you believe in God, but you find it hard to consciously rest in the fact that he loves you. You functionally live like you need to please him. All of these things point us toward a deep internal insecurity. Do some of them hit home, causing us to be self-absorbed, causing us to be focused on ourselves and our achievements and our desires? It's interesting that the enemy of humility, yes, is pride, but is also insecurity. These things are the same, uh, different sides of the same coin, the coin of self-absorption. Which one resonates with you most? Or dangerously, do they both? I am a pridefully insecure person, and it's a dangerous combination that works against the kind of gospel humility that we are being called to. It's a damaging thing to us because we become a people who insist on our own way. We become a people who blame others and refuse to apologize and feel self-pity when other people do well. We're not able to celebrate when other people do well. We become hungry for approval. We become depressed when we don't get that approval. We have surface relationships because we can't get vulnerable. All sorts of practical problems result from our pride and our insecurity, our lack of humility. And to one degree or another, we're all this way. We're all this way. Humility, not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less, a joyful self-forgetfulness. Something that we're not very good at because of our deep-rooted pride and our deep-rooted insecurity. Third question then, where's the hope for us? Where's the hope for us in this? Let's look together at verses 5, 6, and following. First of all, in verse 5, we read, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in 
Christ Jesus. He is calling us to live into something, grow into something that is already ours. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus is in the form of God. This means he has the very nature of God. One of the many texts in the Bible that speaks to us about the divinity of Jesus, that within him dwell all wisdom, all power, all holiness, all justice, all goodness, all truth. He is God in his very being. Jesus is infinite and eternal and unchangeable. And though he was this way, he did not count equality a thing to be grasped. He did not think of the rights and privileges and glory that are part of his divinity as things that he was unable to give up. He did not hold on to his status, you could say, with white knuckles. Instead, verse 7, he made himself nothing by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. Jesus made himself nothing. Now, it doesn't mean that he gave up being God. We believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man. When he makes himself nothing, it is driving at the the condescension or the uh, humiliation that uh, was involved in taking uh, humanity upon himself. And we think of a billionaire who decides to go and serve soup to homeless people. She must leave beside the riches and the benefits of her wealth and laying them to one side in order to work in the dirt and the grime of the streets. And in the same way, Jesus doesn't stop being God when he comes to earth, but he lays aside these divine prerogatives. He makes himself nothing. Then, verse 8, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's hard to imagine, and it's impossible to illustrate, the great condescension in in Jesus going from from God to humanity. But then he, he doesn't stop there. He moves on to not just be human, but to die. To die, and not just to die, but to die on a cross, the most shameful and lowly of deaths. Jesus uses his divine authority and his omnipotent power the way he always does, which is for your good. That's how he works. He uses his power for the welfare of his people, to lay down his life, to make himself nothing, to humble himself, we read in verse 8. So in Jesus, then, where is the hope? We have the ultimate example of humility. In Jesus, we have the the ultimate picture of humility. Far from being self-absorbed, Jesus is gloriously self-forgetful not asserting his rights and his power, but rather giving them up for the significance and interest of others, namely us. So where is the hope? Is the hope that Jesus has given us this ultimate example of humility and we are to go and do likewise? No, that is not the hope. Why? Because that is a crushing legalism that will make you feel more prideful when you follow him well and more insecure when you fail to follow him well. The hope of the gospel is not Jesus has come and lived a perfect life, so now be like him and live a perfect life yourself and all will be well. That is no hope for people like me. I know I'm meant to be humble. And I have an example of Jesus as being humble, but I'm still not. I'm still prideful and insecure. Our problem is deeper than uh, (laughs) the surface. We need more than an example. 
And the gospel comes to us, this grace-driven hermeneutic, this grace-driven understanding of the text, this grace-driven way in which we approach the scriptures that is very faithful and biblical, tells us that humility is not possible because Jesus left an example for you. Humility isn't possible because Jesus left an example for you. Humility is possible because Jesus humbled himself for you. A world of difference here. It's not possible because he's given you an example. It's possible because he has humbled himself for you. How does this work? Well, we said earlier that we lack humility because of pride and insecurity. And see that if you know that Jesus has humbled himself for you, if you understand that he left the glories of heaven, setting it all aside, that he might come to this earth in a lowly human form and suffer and die, if you see how he has humbled himself for you, it really does away with all pride. Because why did he do all that? He did all that because of our sin. If I have not sinned, I don't need him to humble himself for me. But because I have, I need him. And so he has condescended to uh, humble himself in a way that will bring us salvation. It does away with pride because it tells us and highlights that we're more sinful than we imagined. I think of that great day when you stand before God and he says, why should I let you into my heaven? And you pull out your resume and you give it to him. And you sit there believing your own resume. It's a dangerous thing to believe, DC people. It's a one-pager of some of your best moments, not even your best days. And the Lord says, this is very impressive. This is very impressive. Just one more thing. And he reaches down and out of a drawer, he pulls out a big file with everything you ever did that's not on the resume. And your pride starts to waver a little bit. And you recognize your sin. And you see your great need of salvation. If you know that Jesus has humbled himself for you because of your sin, if you believe this morning that Jesus did this, he came to earth so that your sins might be forgiven, there is no room for pride. Secondly, and obviously you know where I'm going, if you understand that Jesus has humbled himself for you, there's also no room for insecurity. There's also no room for insecurity because Jesus came not only because of your sin, but also because of his great love for you. Yes, we are more sinful than we had ever believed, but we're also, as we often say, more loved than we ever dared imagine. And so it's this combination of being realistic about our sin, but having an equal realism about God's great love for us. And so he doesn't call us to be an insecure people because he says, I have demonstrated your value in my humiliation. In coming to this earth, in walking upon it and living and dying, I have shown you how valuable you are to me. I have shown you what you are worth to me. And so do not feel insecure. Do not want you to live with these nagging doubts about who you are and how you've been made. You belong to me and I made you and I want you not to be living out of this insecurity. The picture that came to mind was of a gymnast. Imagine you're watching the Olympics and right before the gymnast hits the mat, all the judges hold up a perfect score. How is she then going to go out and perform? She's going to go out and she's going to perform with a joyful 
even reckless abandon. Not fearful of the mistake, not fearful of losing a medal, but enjoying her art and enjoying what the Lord has enabled her to do. And so it is we are called to live, called not to be a people who are straining to earn high scores, but who live with a joyful, slightly reckless abandon in grace because we know that the verdict is already in. There is no room for insecurity either. Humility, then, is this joyful self-forgetfulness, not because we think less of ourselves, but because we think of ourselves less. The great danger to it comes in pride and insecurity, which call us to be self-absorbed and focus upon what's going on in our own hearts and in our own minds. But Jesus humbles himself, walking upon this earth to pay for our sins, so there's no room for pride. But walking upon this earth to pay for our sin because he loves us, so there's no room for insecurity either. Next week, we're going to dive into the details of this text, and we're going to look at how this should radically transform the way in which we relate to each other and the way in which we operate as a church. And I also reserve the right to come up with a third thing. (laughs) Let's pray together. Father, we recognize that humility is your shadow. That where you go, humility necessarily follows. And so we want to receive you into our hearts through your Son, Jesus Christ. Receive you as the one who died for our sins because he loves us. So that you will do away with our pride and do away with our insecurity. Enable us to have this joyful self-forgetfulness. Father, I really want you to do this work in our hearts. We really ask, Lord, that you would make us a church that's passionate about this. We don't just want to be passionate about worship and discipleship and care and missions and these good activities that you've given us. We don't want to just be passionate about reaching the lost and seeing believers encouraged. We want to be passionate about humility as well. We want to be seen as different because of our relationship with you. So, Lord, be at work to make us passionately humble people. We pray in Jesus' perfect name. Amen.